All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn them this morning to Genesis chapter 7. Looking at the entire chapter of Genesis 7 this morning, title of the message simply, Judgment. Today we come to the account proper of the great worldwide flood, which represents God's first judgment upon mankind for its wickedness. The foundation has been laid in God's commission to Noah to prepare by building an ark because there was coming a day where the rains would fall and where God would flood the earth, destroying all flesh because of the wickedness of man which was great upon the earth. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2, 5 that Noah was a preacher of righteousness in his day indicating for what we would believe to be that 120-year portion where God said that man's days would be 120 years. Uh, For that time, Noah was preaching righteousness to the people of that day, busy about the work of telling others that judgment was coming, and now the time has come for that judgment to fall. So we read in Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 10. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark the male and the female, as God commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. So the time has come for God's judgment to fall upon man for his wickedness. God tells Noah and his family to enter into the ark as those who are righteous among those who are otherwise in that generation perverse, wicked. And he brings seven of every clean animal and two of every unclean animal, male and female, into the ark to preserve them upon the earth. Now, naturally, this would allow the various kinds that are upon the earth to procreate after the flood and then to replenish the earth following the fact. Notice as well that of unclean animals, the Bible says they took two of every kind. And of clean animals, there were seven of every kind. And this is interesting to think about for a few reasons. Well, first... When we talk about the idea of clean and unclean animals, we have only one reference point in all of history to really connect this, biblical or secular, and that is to Leviticus 11. We don't see any other sort of a record in in, uh, science or, or biology or anything of the sort as it would relate to a clean and unclean animal, right? The clean and the unclean animal designations were designations that were given by God 
through Moses to the people of Israel in the law. So in Leviticus chapter 11, we see a definition of the difference between a clean animal and an unclean animal for society and for ceremonial purposes in the law of Moses in the nation of Israel. A land animal that had a parted hoof and chewed the cud was clean. An animal that bore only one or neither of those attributes was considered unclean. A water creature that had fins and scales could be clean. But any water creature that had only one or neither of those characteristics, fins and scales, would be unclean. In Leviticus, among flying creatures, we see pretty much just a a list of those ones which were clean. And then, of course, with insects, God says any flying insect whose legs were above their feet, making them uh, bent in such a way to allow for leaping, was clean. And every other crawling creature, insect, was unclean. That is the law of clean and unclean as we see it in Leviticus 11. But the interesting thing about this is that the law of Moses was a direct covenant, right? That was made between God and that particular nation. Not only do we find that God did not judge other nations for a failure to allow for this pattern of clean and unclean animals particularly for eating, which is they were eating and then there were sacrifices, but particularly for eating here as we think of most of these clean and unclean designations. But in the New Testament, we know that God gave explicit emphasis to the fact that the Christian church was not in any way bound by the ceremonial demands of clean and unclean animals. So Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, we've talked about this before. What Paul is saying here is that when God instituted these Old Testament systems, the Old Testament systems of sacrifices, of clean and unclean animals... Uh, of meat and of drink in that way, of the new moons and the Sabbath days, of the various um, uh, um, holidays that were instituted by the law of Moses. These things were given to that nation to follow explicitly, but for, uh, in a broader sense, they are given as a shadow of things to come. And we've talked before, we talked in the, in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ when I was preaching through that series, uh, the, the seeming connections between the order of the Jewish feast days, the nature of the Jewish feast days, and the order of events as God has prescribed it in prophecy. So we've talked about that, and we've talked about the, the, the nature of the, the, the symbolic nature of the various elements of the Sabbaths and the new moons and the meat and the drink as it relates to some of the things that are going to come in the kingdom and in, in that millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So we see those things, and we recognize that Paul has designated to the Christian church, as through most people throughout history, that this idea of clean and unclean animals is not something that we are bound to specifically as it relates to eating. And of this, there are several other thoughts. First, we know that Genesis was not penned in Noah's day. Rather, the Gospels seem to indicate that these books, being called the books of Moses, were written by at least strong indications that that Genesis through Deuteronomy were written by Moses under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To this end, if Moses were, in fact, writing these first five books, often called the Pentateuch, it's entirely possible that 
when God gathered these animals, we know that Noah didn't actually gather the animals, right? We know that God gathered the animals and Noah was to provide for those animals, that God said he was going to bring seven of the clean animals and two of the unclean animals. But it's entirely possible that Noah didn't actually have a full understanding of the distinction between clean and unclean as the law had not yet been given, had not yet been written. I used to think that, that the fact that uh, Genesis spoke of clean and unclean animals means that they would have observed this clean and unclean practice in their day. That was my first initial thought. Oh, the Bible co- talks about clean and unclean animals in Genesis. That means that clean and unclean animals, the standard for clean and unclean animals, predates the law of Moses so that the people in, Mo- in Noah's day probably did understand the clean and unclean. But I don't think that anymore. And the reason why I don't think that anymore is because of the second observation. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get to Genesis chapter 9. And in Genesis chapter 9, we're going to find that in that day, when they get off of the ark and, and um, Noah, God is establishing his covenant with Noah and with Noah's posterity, God is going to give to mankind in that day the, the, the privilege, the right to eat animals. And by implication, up until that point... Up until this point in history, mankind did not eat animals. And so the clean and unclean designations would not have made a whole lot of usefulness, save for perhaps sacrificial system. But it wouldn't have had a whole lot of use for those who did not eat animals. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. So the idea of unclean animals and clean animals would have been somewhat of a moot point, at least for eating, uh, with the only possible application being for sacrifices on the altar. To this end, it seems likely that God indicated this inclusion of clean and unclean animals, that he brought seven along of the clean animals and two of the unclean animals, specifically for the sake of those who would be reading it in Moses' day and following, our day as well. It doesn't necessarily fall under the principles of clean and unclean uh, as it would relate to some sort of precedent or, or um, uh, uh, value, but only that God is giving us that insight for our day and within the expectation of understanding the rest of scriptures, particularly the Mosaic law. Apart from the law, both after the flood, prior to the law, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the followers of God have been given explicit freedom to eat any meat with the exception of that portion of time where the law was in effect for the nation of Israel. So we come then to the next natural question that has bothered readers for many generations as it relates to this account. When we look at the world that is around us, we find there to be an excessive number of animals. And that fails to account for all of the various species who have gone extinct over the millennia. How then do we reconcile? So we've, we've thought through the idea that there's going to be seven of the clean animals, there's going to be two of the unclean animals, and then Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives. How do we reconcile the sheer number of animals that we see in the world today with the idea that they all got onto the ark? That's an important question for us to think through. If we believe that this account is historical, then as a part of history, it would be rational. We talked a little bit last time we were together about the fact that the boat's dimensions themselves were sound. That they've done studies to say, well, yep, the dimensions as given and the size of the ark, that ark would float. That, that boat would float if it were built properly. But what do we do then with the animals? Could they have all gotten into the boat? Is that even rational? 
If it's not rational, then we might need to rethink this whole Noah narrative. Is it just metaphor? Is it just allegory? Is it just a myth that grew over time? But if it's rational, and in that the word of God in Genesis is presenting itself as historical narrative. It's not presenting itself as parable. It's not presenting itself as myth. It's not presenting itself as poetry. It's presenting itself as historical narrative. And there's no reason for us to believe it's not historical narrative unless there's a reason for us to believe it's not historical narrative. So does this pass the, the test of rationality? Is it possible to get all of the animals onto that boat? And of course, there have been various efforts of historical scientists to understand this. And as I mentioned last week, so too this week, as it relates to anything concerning the ark, very few have done better work than Answers in Genesis on this idea. So I'm going to be giving you some of the fruit of their research again. And of course, you can always go and look up more if you are interested. First, we find that the designation for the animals that got on the ark is a designation of kind. And then we have to ask the question, what does it mean that every two of every kind, or seven as a clean animals of every kind, got on the ark? Now, the, the designation of kind is not one that we have in our science books today. Kind is not a scientific, um, a scientific uh, designation as it relates to the classification system that we use today, which was a classification system invented by Carl Linnaeus. And within Linnaeus's system... The kind we would most likely believe would correspond to the family in the hierarchy of biological classifications. And let me walk you through this way of thinking so that you can kind of see why it is we would connect kind in the Bible to family in Linnaeus's biological classification system. And a great example of this, I'll use the example of cats, okay? So tigers are a species of cat. Lions are a species of cat. Tigers and lions would share that same genus of cat. They all fall into that same uh, uh, genus that is cats. As well as all cats then fall into the same family. And it is here, beyond the cat family, that things split. So going all the way up to family within the biological classification system, everything that is in, within the same family can reproduce with one another. So a tiger and a lion can reproduce with one another because they are part of the same species, uh, gen, uh, excuse me, genus and family because they're part of the same family. Family is, is what we go up to there. And every um, animal that falls within the same family is able to reproduce one with another. Now, when we look at what the scriptures have told us, when the Bible says that God brought these animals onto the ark, it says in verse 2, of every clean beast thou shalt take unto thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of the beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. So we see very specifically that the reason why God was gathering these animals together is so that after the flood they can reproduce which means that if they go any higher than family, they're not going to be able to reproduce with one another, and that's not going to work, which tells us that we know at the very least two of every family of animal had to get on that ark. So outside, beyond family, cats are an order with the carnivores. The order of cats is carnivore. 
Not every carnivore can reproduce with every other carnivore, however. They're not in the same family. They're only in the same order. Cats are a part of a class called the class of mammals. Not every mammal can reproduce with every other mammal, right? So that, that order or that, that classification doesn't work. Cats are a part of a phylum called chordata, meaning that they have a spinal cord. Not every vertebrae can reproduce with every other vertebrae. That doesn't work. And then, of course, cats are a part of the kingdom known as animals. And that's the highest level there of the biological classification system. So since the whole point of God preserving the animals on the ark was for them to reproduce after the flood, it's natural and logical, logical to assume that as long as God brought one, uh, two, two or seven of every family on the ark, that there would be enough genetic variability within that family to produce all of the various variations that we find today. The animal would have that genetic variation, can populate multiple genus and species throughout that process and over time. Naturally, this means that Noah did not need a lion and a tiger and a leopard and a jaguar and a lynx and a bobcat and one of those hairless demon cats. He didn't, wouldn't need all those. We'd only need two from the cat family, and that would be enough with the genetic variability to create tigers and lions as they would spread out around the world, as then their, their genetic code would be homogenous to a particular group of those family of cats, and that would create the, the uniquenesses of the various species that we find today among cats. Now, second... It's entirely rational to assume that God would have brought not just only two of every family, which we would connect to the kind there. So not every species, not even every genus, every family, right? It's rational that we would see that he'd bring two of every family. It's also rational to imagine that God would not have brought the biggest full adult animals for every animal, but young ones. And in that the young ones would not just fit better, eat less, but also the young ones would have the maximal amount of time to reproduce before their death. And so it's rational to think that God would have brought young animals, not just a few in a family, for the space of longevity of life following the flood. Maximum chance to reproduce. We can make further postulations about how many of these kinds would be necessary to get into the ark. We can assume that sea creatures would probably fare just fine in the flood. Historical science believes that about 30% of all mammal families that have ever existed are still alive today. So historical scientists believe that 70% of the total mammal families that have ever existed have already gone extinct. So if we extrapolate the number of families of animals that are alive today, we extrapolate out that extra 70%, and we extrapolate that to other classes of amphibians and reptiles and birds, the upper estimate of the total number of families that would need to get on that ark would be about 1,700. Well, that's not too bad. More realistically, the number is actually probably less than 1,500. Among those animals, relatively few are actually quite large, right? For every elephant or for every large cat or for every giraffe, you have an awful lot of little bitty things, right? When, even when they're full grown, they're very, very small. You go to the zoo and you see a few animals in very, very large enclosures. And then you see a lot of animals in very, very small enclosures because there's a lot of very, very small things out there. 
So of those 1,700 separate families, how many of those would need a lot of space? Probably not too many. Very few are large when fully grown. Even fewer are large when they are young. Then we account for the fact that there's seven of every clean animal, and then there's two of every unclean animal, and we would likely expect about 7,000 living creatures to be on that ark. When you account for all the families, when you account for seven of every clean and two of every unclean, you account for Noah and his family, about 7,000 creatures on that ark. Now, the ark had 1.88 million cubic feet of space in it. That would give about 270 cubic feet of space per individual creature on the ark. 270 cubic feet is relatively comfortable living conditions, especially if you think about the fact that a lot of them, again, are in very, very small enclosures, so you get all those little things together, and then you've got a lot more room for the big things. There's a reasonable amount of room on that ark. In 2014, scientists at the University of Leicester calculated that at its size, Noah's Ark could carry 70,000 animals without sinking. So if it could handle 70,000 individuals, according to the University of Leicester there in, in, in England, and it only had in the upper range 7,000 individuals on it, that kind of changes your way of thinking about the Ark. Instead of looking at the Ark and saying, how did they fit? All of those creatures on the ark, if we work it, work it down to kinds, families, and then we work that to the, the, the young ones, not the old ones, and then we work that to um, the amount of space that was on the ark, 270 cubic feet per individual on that ark, okay, then you, a lot of them don't need that much space. Some of them might need a little bit more, and then you've got to get food and all of that on there. And you think through that whole process... And then you realize, okay, within the, the scope of study, they say 70,000 animals could be on that ark without sinking. It would probably be pretty tight. Why was there so much room on the ark? It's the real question, right? If it was only using 10% of its capacity for the amount of creatures that it, had, that, that it needed, why was the ark so big? And while we don't know, we don't know all the ins and outs of why God chose what he chose and the size and everything else. The character of God, which is above all gracious and merciful, commends to our hearts a possible explanation. And again, I don't make this up myself. This is something that, that Answers in Genesis has um, spoken about. If we think through what's happening in that day of judgment. Noah, the Bible says, was a preacher of righteousness. We believe that he preached for 120 years. If God had already doomed all of humanity to judgment, it wouldn't have made sense to ask Noah to preach for those 120 years. God told Noah to preach for those 120 years because God is a God who is above all merciful. And as we talked about last week, we would believe, based upon the character of God as we see it from the Old Testament and the New, if anyone else had been willing to get into that boat, they could have gotten into that boat because that is the kind of God that we serve. In Revelation chapter 22, it's the final chapter in the Bible, and we're going to talk about this more next week, uh, connecting the nature of the flood to 
the end times events that are coming in the future. But in Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 17, or just at verse 17, the Bible says this, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. What we find in the Word of God is that God's promise of mercy from judgment, God's promise of judgment is sure. It has always been sure. But God's promise of mercy has always been sure as well. Whosoever will, Revelation 22 says, may come. If you hear these things that are about to happen, if you hear the promise of judgment, if you see that God is righteous and that man is sinful and that man is worthy to be judged, if you understand these things and you come to be saved, the door is open for you. You may be saved. God has not closed himself off to anyone. Now, when we talk about salvation, we recognize that salvation is exclusionary in nature. That there is an exclusive people, set of people that are going to get to heaven, and those are the people that have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. But the exclusionary nature of salvation is not because God has withheld anyone from that offer. It is not because God is being exclusionary. It's because people have rejected that offer, right? It's the people that have chosen not God. God has opened the way for all men, then men choose. And when we consider the consistency of God throughout the generations in this regard, combined with the obvious connection between the nature of the ark in Noah's day and the picture of salvation through Jesus Christ, which we'll consider more in a couple of weeks, there is no reason to assume anything other than that that boat had plenty of room because it was designed to carry plenty of people. If they would only be willing to get on that boat. They weren't willing to get on that boat, but that's not because God didn't make room for them on the boat. It's because they weren't willing to get on the boat. So God gathers the animals together. He tells Noah to get in the boat. In seven days, God would cause it to rain. It would rain for 40 days and 40 nights upon the earth. The Bible says Noah obeyed. And the text tells us that Noah was 600 years when the floods came. We continue in verses 11 through 15. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They, and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort, and they went into, in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. So we note here the manner of the flood. The windows of heaven were opened so that the rain was upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. But we might imagine that the bulk of the water, sufficient to actually cover the whole of the earth, perhaps came from what the Bible says were the fountains of the deep breaking up. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible spoke of the land 
when God created the land, dividing the waters, the waters which were above the earth, from the waters which were below the earth. And we, we spent time focusing upon the waters which were above the earth, and we talked about various theories as it related to the possibility of a water canopy that was around the earth. But then we said, yes, but when the text talks about the waters above the earth, it actually says that those waters were placed beyond the stars, so that if anything, that water um, barrier would have been at the end of the, the, the created universe, not necessarily at the end of our atmosphere atmosphere or at the end of our solar system, but we never really thought through the waters under the earth. And that might be what's being spoken of here. We might comfortably assume that under the earth there was perhaps a great deal of water, maybe even an entire layer of water upon which the earth's crust would sit. Now again, there's a great deal of scientific research behind the quick summary that I'm giving. The crust of the earth, along with the stiff portion of the mantle, are called the lithosphere of the earth. And today that lithosphere is not one continuous piece. It's divided into pieces along what we call fault lines. And we call those tectonic plates. Now those tectonic plates drift ever so slightly upon the softer mantle that is beneath it. Uh, a softer layer that as, it gets as, as the, you, know, you get closer to the Earth's core, there's more heat. And so things are softening over time. So that when you see volcanoes erupt, what you're seeing there is you're seeing a part of that mantle coming up out of the Earth through the tremendous pressure that's underneath it. And it's, it's, it's liquid rock, right, because it's so hot under there. And we, we see that our, these tectonic plates move along the, 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 the mantle of the earth. And they meet at fault lines. And these fault lines, of course, are today what we would account, what we would say account for the earth's earthquakes. As fault lines rub against each other, and, and the, the earth kind of jams against each other, when that happens, the friction of those two tectonic plates coming against each other is what creates the shaking, the movement of the earth that we call earthquakes. Most biblical scientists today credit these fault lines as originally having been created at this point in Genesis 7 when the fountains of the deep broke up. That at that point, the earth literally broke up, that there were fissures created in the earth, and that out of that, those fissures uh, burst through those fault lines tremendous amounts of, uh, of, of water under the pressure of the heat that was underneath it, creating those tectonic plates, not only filling the earth with water, which makes up about 70% of the earth's surface, but also, again, crashing those plates together. And today, we only see itty-bitty little shifts in that, and that's what creates earthquakes. But if you imagine that those tectonic plates, at one point, the earth broke up, and they, uh, and, and they were, were, were violently upheaved, what you would expect to see on the back end of that would be tremendous mountains as those plates jammed together, and valleys, so that we might understand that the mountains and the valleys, the earth as we see it today, the way it is formed and shaped, was created in the flood. Now think about that with me, if that's true. And we're making assumptions here. Remember how I talked about the fact several weeks ago as we were walking through the genealogies in Genesis chapter 5, that the earth as we know it today is very different than the pre-diluvian earth and the pre-flood earth. And we talked about the fact that men lived to be hundreds and hundreds of years old and, and, and what that would mean for technology and what that would mean for passing things down from generation to generation. And we talked about Cain's line and how they, were, they, they, they made instruments and how they made weapons and, 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 and how they forged metals and all of these various things. And, and 
we, we settled on this idea that this would have been an entirely foreign world to us. It's almost impossible for us, even in our imaginations, to try to erect what that world must have been like. Well, if, if we take these various elements of the flood and we think through it in this way, if we assume that the tectonic plates were created as the fountains of the, uh, of the deep uh, broke up and water rushed from what was underneath the earth to above the earth, and that whole process, well, then we start to realize that maybe it wasn't even just humans that were different, societies and civilizations that were different, but that the earth fundamentally is very different in, in form today than it was prior to the flood. That our oceans and our seas, our continents, our mountains, our canyons, our valleys might be very, very different, completely different than it looked 4,500 years ago. Now, there's a little bit of this in historical science that you would learn actually from a textbook. Most of this stuff, you know, you wouldn't learn from textbooks. You learn from, from the Bible and then creation ministries. Uh, but there was that idea um, floating around for some years. I think they called it, what do they call it, Pangea, where they tried to connect South Africa or South America to, to Africa and seeing some of the general shape similarities there. And so they assumed at one time that perhaps that was one continent, that everything was perhaps at one time one continent, and then as the plate shifted and the crust shifted, everything moved. Makes sense to me, actually. And you know what would precipitate that pretty well? A global cataclysm, like we read about in Genesis chapter 7. And so even within the idea of historical science within the secular realm, there is a real... um, possibility here that at one time all of the earth was one singular unit and that in this flood it was so upheaving, so great, so dramatic that it literally shifted the entire world on its foundation. And that whole parts of the, uh, of the crust broke up and resettled in different ways, creating mountains, creating valleys as these plates crashed against each other and, and, and made massive mountains that were not there before. So that the world that we're living in now is very different than the world as it was 4,500 years ago at the flood. And more than this, if we recognize that, the, that, that those earthquakes are still those tectonic plates ever so slightly shifting on one another, and we think as we get to Genesis chapter 8 and 9 about the fact that it is at that time that God ordained seasons, and we think about the fact that it's quite possible that there weren't, wasn't really the same season system prior to the flood, It's very possible that as we feel earthquakes today, as we deal with the hurricanes and the floods and the tornadoes, in some senses, the earth might actually still be settling down from that dramatic upheaval that happened some 4,500 years ago. And if we think of it that way, it might give us a little bit of a taste of just how dramatic the flood was. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments, trying to help us frame our our understanding on the nature of this Genesis 7 flood narrative. But let's continue in the text here. Genesis uh, 7, verses 16 through 20. And they that went in went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. Excuse me. 
And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. As we continue in the text, we notice in verse 16, the Bible says that the Lord shut Noah in. It's worth noting, and again, we'll stress more in another message. Noah got in the ark. God closed the door. Noah did not choose when the, do- when the door was closed to the ark of salvation. God chose when the door was closed to the ark of salvation. Noah did not choose when the rain began. Noah did not know when the rain was going to begin. God chose when the rain began, when the rain was going to begin. And again, we'll talk about that more later. So the waters increase upon the earth. They cover everything upon the earth. All of the mountains uh, were covered upon the earth. Fifteen cubits high were the waters that prevailed upon the earth. Chapter, we, can t- uh, we finish in verses 21 through 24, excuse me. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both fowl and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of heaven, And they were drowned from the earth. And Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in 150 days. We'll talk more about the timing, the 40 days, then the 150 days and such in Genesis chapter 8. Take note, however, of the Bible's emphasis upon the fact that all life died upon the face of the earth. Between what we have seen in our day and what we have recorded in history we have seen destruction. We can read of tremendous loss connected to volcanic eruptions. We can read of tremendous loss in the days of the Black Plague. We can read of the amazing number of people that died in World War I and World War II, and even more so at the hand of communism over the next, next uh, 50, 60, 70 years following World War II. Hundreds of millions of people dead in these sorts of things. Man-induced he, uh, naturally induced. But always that destruction and death is at least somewhat localized. Destruction on a scale that we find here. Upheaval of the earth on, a, on the scale that we find here. We can read historical accounts of volcanoes erupting and the entire earth having a cloud over it for some time. So the sun gets obscured. Uh, was it last summer, the summer before, all those fires in Canada? And we had ash falling in Buffalo, Minnesota, right, from those fires in Canada. And you'd go outside, and on a bad day, your eyes started to burn a little bit because it was a little smoky outside. And we can see the kind of impact, localized impact, that terrible destruction has made. But this was the entire earth. This was every person, every creature, with the exception of those 7,000 or so that were on that boat. And this is the picture. This is what we need to frame our minds around. I've tried to help you today perhaps think through what things might have looked like as it related to the earth and how the earth might look different and how the earth might even still be reeling from the upheaval of that flood so many years ago. But the 
most important thing that we need to do when we are framing our minds on our thoughts of Genesis 7 is to remember the kind of judgment that God levied there. Noah's Ark is one of the more accessible and spectacular accounts in the Bible. Because of that, it received an outsized amount of attention. And it particularly receives an outsized amount of attention for children because as it relates to stories in the Bible, again, it's more spectacular, it's more accessible, and it's got a lot of colors and fun because there are animals involved. So these stories will often present a somewhat sanitized version of the events at hand, emphasizing the ark, emphasizing the animals, showing them with smiles as they float above the water. And in one sense, it's appropriate. The animals were probably pretty happy because they weren't in the water like every other creature on earth. But the point of Genesis 7 is actually every other creature on earth. The account of the worldwide flood in the days of Noah represents one of the darkest points in the history of humanity. Mass destruction and death. Utter desolation of life. A destruction which was not unavoidable, but the natural an inevitable result of the depths of mankind's own perversion and rebellion against the God who created him. And in this we are reminded that while grace is a wonderful thing, and thank God that he has made that way through entering into the ark of salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ, on the day that the clouds part and Jesus returns for his own, there will be far more people judged than saved. And may we not forget, though it is wonderful to think of heaven, and it is wonderful to rejoice in our salvation and to rejoice in the God of our salvation, may we not forget what else will happen on that day when God... And, and we'll, we'll, we'll connect this dot, we'll connect this picture more next week. When God once again, because he said he's coming again, closes the door of that ark and begins to reign that judgment. May our hearts ache for those who have not heard. May our hearts ache to help those who do not understand. Not that we are lifted up in pride that we have our place in the ark but that we are eager and earnest to help those who aren't in the ark get there. Because on that day, it was a day of tragedy. It was a day of destruction. It was a day of loss. Yes, we consider the grace, and we'll get there. Genesis 8, Genesis 9, the grace was coming, and we've already talked about that grace much. But don't allow the fact that God showed grace to Noah to cause you to overlook what happened on that day and for those 40 days. Help others, as we should understand ourselves, the terror of that day. It's interesting, in Amos chapter 5, God is writing to the nation of Israel through Amos. And we read this in verse 18. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. For we who are saved, we rest in the ark of salvation. 
The day of the Lord will be a day of glory. The day of the Lord will be our, the day of our salvation. It will be the day of our blessed hope. And that is a good thing and it is something to look forward to. But it is something to look forward to with the, with the, the, the righteous fear of knowing that it, we have a, a job to do while we're still here. That there are still people that need to hear, that need to know. Because on that day when the rain started and the fountains of the deep began to be broken up, You can imagine what those people who heard Noah preaching for 120 years that this was going to happen thought. And maybe in our sanctified imaginations, we might imagine what that looked like. That they ran to that ark and they started banging on the walls of that ark and saying, open the door. But see, God had already closed the door. The door was not opening again. And the rains began to fall. And the fountains of the deep began to break up. But by that point... It was too late. They had a chance. There was plenty of room in the boat. Noah said for 120 years it was coming. But then the door closed, and it was too late. And every man, every woman, every child, every creeping thing, every beast, every bird would now die. And we are reminded that though God is merciful and gracious, He is also holy. And a holy God hates sin. And sin must be judged. And that judgment is severe. To this end, the time for rejoicing is coming. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have entered into the ark of salvation, you have that to look forward to. It is your blessed hope. But may we not overlook the terror of the Lord. May we not fail to cry from the housetops of that coming judgment. To help people relate themselves properly to God, to His holiness, to His righteousness, to His justice. If by chance some might hear, might believe, and might join us in the Ark of Salvation. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.